Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's episode is part of The Realignment's daily series, covering the big themes that drove 2022. If you're enjoying the daily episodes and would like to support the work that he's putting in this month, go to realignment.supercast.com where you can subscribe for a monthly, yearly, or lifetime membership. Today's episode is all about the FBI, especially as embodied by its most famous director, J. Edgar Hoover. I'm speaking with Beverly Gage, a professor of 20th century American history at Yale. She's the author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Making of the American Century, which just came out. In terms of 2022 themes, not only did the FBI find itself at the center of politics during the Trump presidency, but the raid on Mar-a-Lago earlier this year brought the debate about how the Bureau should behave during a moment of hyper-politicization. With this issue, it's been interesting to note how the FBI has shifted from an institution that seemed aimed at the left in the 50s through the 70s to the far right in the 1990s, and now to the Trump right in the 2010s and 2020s. There's no obvious answer for how to address this, and there's no way we're going back to the pre-FBI world, but it's a dynamic to think about going into the next year. Huge thank you to Lincoln Network and hope you all enjoy this episode and I will see you tomorrow. Professor Beverly Gage, welcome to The Realignment. It's great to be here. Great to chat with you. Really interested in the book, obviously. I want to, I have a question to start about the title. What was the American century in the context of the FBI? Right. You think of, you know, at you know, Luce and the um big essay in, you know, 1941, but one wouldn't also think of that as also related to J. Edgar Hoover. So introduce the concept of the American century and what it has to do with the FBI. Yeah. So the American century is often a term that kind of refers to U.S. power around the world. Um, I think here I'm using it in a couple of ways. One is just kind of a shorthand for the 20th century, uh, which was, as we all know, the American century. Um, but more importantly, you know, Hoover understood himself really to be an arbiter of what was American and what was legitimately American throughout much of the 20th century. And he was in power for a big swath of it. Um, his central cause was anti-communism. And so to the degree that, you know, a lot of American power is defined through the Cold War, he's at the center of that. And I think even more importantly, he's really at the center of a story about the growth of the American government in the federal government, especially during this century. And that's the other part of the title, right? G-Man is government man. And, and that's kind of the big, big theme of the book. I've read the, aside from the book, just the, the Atlantic excer excerpt and the the phrasing of him considering himself to be the person who determined the bounds of political legitimacy was so interesting on a couple of different levels. A, aside from his long tenure, did anyone else kind of consent to that? And by anyone else, I mean, even figures within the American government, like put aside democracy for a second, would, let's say, a Truman or an Eisenhower say, you know what, like, that's a good balance for you to operate under. 
Well, the answer is yes and no. So one of the really interesting things about studying a figure like Hoover, who was at the FBI from 1924 to 1972, 48 years through eight different presidents, um, is that it gives us a different lens into this sort of question and, you know, to some degree into unaccountable power and bureaucratic power in the heart of what we think of as a, as a kind of democratic system. So it looks a lot different than electoral politics in that sense. Um, and Hoover certainly built the FBI as an institution that he could control, that reflected his own ideas about virtue and legitimacy and, you know, what it meant to be American. But at the same time, he had incredibly widespread support. And for me, that was probably the most interesting aspect of his life when I went back and started to study it was how popular he was how relatively open he was, not necessarily about the details of FBI investigations, but about his basic political views and political priorities, and then how much these presidents and Congress liked and supported him uh, for a variety of reasons, Republicans and Democrats both. It's funny, in your uh, podcast with Slate, you mentioned his like 90% plus Saddam Hussein level approval ratings. I wonder this when, and I don't know the current polling, but obviously J. Edgar Hoover is not going to rank highly on any public approval uh, survey across any angle of the political aisle. When did those high approval ratings start to collapse? Yeah, Hoover's approval ratings in the 1950s in particular are these astonishing things. Um, so uh, one in 1953 asks, you know, your basic, do you approve or disapprove? 78% of people say they approve of him. 20% say they don't have any particularly powerful opinion. And only 2% of the people polled say they don't like what he's doing, which is you know, just extraordinary, both then and certainly now. So that really begins to change in the 1960s. And that's when I think our image of Hoover uh, that we still have today is really set in place. And it's where people start to bifurcate and, and liberals and leftists uh, start to object to what he's doing. Uh, conservatives still really like him during that period. But even at his most controversial moments, so late 60s, early 70s, he's still a pretty popular figure. I mean, his popularity rating never drops below 50% during his lifetime. You know, it's interesting. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the American relationship with longevity in a position of power. So think of FDR, right? Obviously, there were whole Americans who spent their entire formative years of him as president. And, and uh, J. Edgar Hoover is obviously in power for, you know, 48 years, as you, as you point out, do you think that the law, his popularity is explained by maybe just the comfort of him always being there? Like, how do you think about this dynamic? Yeah, well, I think he worked very hard <laughs> to okay. stay in power for that period of time. And there are lots of reasons uh, why it was so hard to get rid of him. But when he died in 1972, still as FBI director, you know, one of the things that people are saying both at the grassroots um, and uh, in the halls of Congress, even at the White House, was, wow, you know, this man was an institution and he was himself this kind of bedrock. You knew what you were getting. 
right? You knew how things were going to operate. And so his death was kind of stunning to a lot of people in that sense who had no living memory of uh, an FBI or a United States of America without Hoover somewhere kind of at the helm. You know, what's interesting when you uh, earlier were discussing the approval ratings in the 1950s, I kind of thought myself wondering, like, wait, who would have an opinion about an FBI director? I know Christopher Wray, but I know Christopher Wray, the current FBI director, because of the Trump era and the fact that there have been a million different books written. But I think that, you know, I'm a more of a decently politically informed person. I had no idea who the FBI director was during the Obama administration. Same of W. Bush, same with uh, Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why did people know about him? And it was that a good thing from his perspective? Would you want to be known? Or would you not want to be known? I suspect Christopher Wray does not want to be as known as he is today. Right. I think that's certainly true about uh, today's directors. And in fact, their very anonymity or relative anonymity is, I think, a reaction to the Hoover era, both that the FBI director's position has been constrained uh, in lots of practical ways, um, but also uh, nobody kind of wants to be in, in the thick of politics in in the same way, you know, Hoover really became a national celebrity in the 1930s, and uh, he mostly embraced it. Um, he mostly uh, thought it was a good thing, built up an enormous public relations apparatus at the FBI um, to kind of promote his ideas, to promote himself, to promote the FBI's own image. And interestingly, you know, I, I think there are things to learn from that, because like Franklin Roosevelt, Hoover believed that the work of government was not self-evident and that if you wanted people to support you, to recognize what you're doing, to keep getting your appropriate all of those mm -hmm. things, you really had to sell it. You had to explain to people what you were doing. Um, and so that's a lot of what uh, all of this FBI PR was aimed at. Um, I think there were lots of ways in which Hoover as a person wasn't very comfortable in the limelight. Um, and he actually retreated more and more as he got older, um, didn't like to be in public quite as much. And so I'm not sure he enjoyed the experience uh, all around. I want to go back to the question I started with, like referring to him as the person who policed the boundaries of American legitimacy, because I think it could serve as a useful correction almost to our conception of him. So obviously, some folks who were outside of his uh, legitimacy, quote unquote, would be communists, obviously, but also um, Martin Luther King, the modern American civil rights movement. But interestingly enough, and this is the excerpt that I'll link to in the show notes, the Ku Klux Klan uh, was, was, was very obviously uh, it's not obvious in terms of our retelling, but when you think about it, like that would be outside using extrajudicial violence going around like the state government. Talk about these, this like, just talk about this idea uh, of how we conceived of like his role in America. Yeah, I think Hoover really is the product of kind of two political traditions. One is uh, a tradition that liberals tended to like quite a lot, which was a kind of career professional government service, federal law enforcement tradition that he did believe in and in some ways helped to create. 
And then at the same time, he was this kind of powerful social conservative. So uh, he was deeply racist in lots of ways and certainly believed in kind of preserving the existing racial hierarchy. Um, Anti-communism was sort of the great cause of his life. And that was very broadly defined, not just going after communist spies, but really anyone um, who he thought was in any way sympathetic to communism um, on religion, et cetera. And kind of his genius was in putting these two forces together and creating a institution that was going to uh, kind of use the tools of the state to enforce his vision. So that meant what's really familiar to a lot of us, which is going after uh, almost everyone on the left, whether it's Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, the communist party, the new left, student activists, civil libertarians, <laughs> liberals often, right? You could just keep going down. Every 60s cliche there. you could come up with. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But at the same time, he did often target groups on the right um, in a slightly different way, often with a little less enthusiasm, but the Ku Klux Klan is a great example. Um, he thought the Klan was illegitimate for its use of violence. He thought the Klan was uh, disruptive of the existing order, and especially you know, a lot of what the Klan and other kind of neo-Nazi white supremacist and kind of white Southern groups did was to thumb their nose at federal power. And he was not going to put up with that and applied some of the same techniques to, to going after the Klan as he did to going after King and, uh, you know, bizarrely often in, in almost exactly the same moment. You know, I am deeply interested in your use of the phrase like social conservative um, to describe uh, J. Edgar Hoover, like not in the sense that like, well, that's like not fair to social conservatives today, but in the sense of that so much of our image of a social conservative today is, let's say, rooted in people who like the ideals of like the 1950s. And, and obviously, if J. Edgar Hoover is coming into power in the 1920s and 1930s, the thing that he was socially conserving, the order he was defending, would not be the same order that a person who is socially conservative today would be defending. So, like, what was he defending, right? Like, what, what, what in what sense was he socially conservative um, in the 1950s and the 1940s in defending the order? Yeah, so I think one area where he understood himself to be sort of defending the existing order was segregation. Um, you know, he talked about race, sometimes explicitly, sometimes more obliquely. He often described going after, uh, say, civil rights groups because of what he said was their close association with communism. Um, but he came out of an early 20th century moment, and in particular, out of a college fraternity that was kind of very dedicated to a sort of progressive Jim Crow vision, right? Uh, we uh, see, you know, these ideas about order being preserved through racial hierarchy, right? That's really uh, the moment that he comes of age. And uh, he was also a, a pretty serious church-going kid um, in the early 20th century and came of age sort of steeped in a tradition of what was called muscular Christianity, but a sort of very manly version of, uh, of Christianity, which became really central to his politics, his social ideas, his whole life. And, you know, we tend to think about him as a lawman, but he was also this very powerful, 
powerful cultural figure and uh, spent a lot of his cultural capital in urging people to attend Sunday school, kind of arguing that religion and Christianity in particular needed to be central to the American struggle against communism. Um, all of these things that we don't think about as being so central to his identity, but that are but that are really right there. That's really, really interesting. I'm curious, um, the FBI, by definition, in terms of this mode of politics, is an incredibly uh, partisan uh, lightning rod. So not to say like institutionally, but you bring up the word FBI, you reference Mar-a-Lago, but obviously it's going to get people thinking in a couple of different directions. I'm curious if given how political every single thing Hoover is doing in the 50s and 60s especially are, um, to what degree was the FBI a partisan issue within either side of the aisle? Yeah, well, one of the kind of amazing things about Hoover's career is not just that he was there for 48 years with eight presidents, but that four of them were Democrats and four of them were Republicans. And uh, he really invested in the idea of the FBI as a nonpartisan organization and of himself as a nonpartisan figure. Uh, he was actually a Washington, D.C. resident his whole life. That meant that he, during those years, never voted. Um, and so uh, you know, it was kind of deep in his, uh, in his DNA and his background, that nonpartisanship. Uh, on the other hand, <laughs> you know, the FBI was constantly then as now being drawn into these highly political investigations. And it's always been a kind of awkward feature of the FBI's structure that it's supposed to stand outside of politics, be outside of the executive branch, be able to investigate even the president. And yet it's inside the executive branch, right? And is um, uh, you know, has an appointed head. Um, and those tensions were always there. You know, Hoover managed to uh, build pa pretty powerful relationships across the aisles. One of my kind of favorite chapters in the book is uh, in the 40s, when Congress is just beginning to kind of get professional staff on its committees. Uh, and they come to Hoover and say, hey, you have good investigators. Can we have some of them for our committees? And he says, Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> and uh, actually then has this point of entree into uh, all of these kind of newly empowered congressional committees through his own staff. Fascinating. I, I'd love to hear what, so I guess this is going to be asked across a couple of different levels. So number one, what did presidents take away from his tenure, especially the post Eisenhower, post 1959-1960 version of it. Yeah, Hoover's tenure was so long that I think there are kind of a couple of different phases, right? In the 20s and 30s, he is a kind of good young administrator. He doesn't have a whole lot of independent power, um, but it's really Franklin Roosevelt uh, in the 1930s that empowers the FBI. It's when Hoover gets the name FBI in place. It's when the name G-Man comes into <laughs> being. Uh, the FBI gets a lot of its law enforcement powers um, and then gets a lot of its domestic intelligence power during the war. Um, but of course, as time goes on, 
that power becomes more and more independently Hoover's power. And by the 1960s, there are a lot of concerns that Hoover is actually more powerful than the president. Um, for instance, the Kennedys did not like Hoover at all, but they were afraid to fire him for a number of reasons having to do with everything from uh, what he happened to know about uh, John Kennedy's um, let's say recreational sex life. Going uh, back to World War II, uh, I had exactly. Fred Logoval on uh, his JFK book, and you know he's bug he's he's bugging nineteen forties JFK. Exactly, uh, and then the Kennedys are also, I think, rightly concerned that particularly conservative Southern Democrats in the party really like Hoover and will revolt um, if they try to fire him. Lyndon Johnson comes along and he and Hoover were actually very close. They had been neighbors on 30th place. They lived right down the block from each other. They used to walk their dogs together, okay. kind of hang out uh, long before Johnson was president. Um, and Johnson thinks Hoover is incredibly useful to him. Uh, and he actually exempts Hoover from what would have been the mandatory federal retirement age at the time of 70. Um, so they have an interesting, complicated relationship because they don't always share the same politics, but they like each other. And then Nixon is probably the most interesting relationship to me, which is to say that he and Hoover were close friends. They shared a lot of the same political outlook from the 1940s onward. But then when Nixon is in the White House, they actually come into conflict a lot because Nixon wants to make the FBI do things that Hoover doesn't want to do. And he says no. And Nixon staffers sit there and say, but Mr. President, just tell him who's president. And Nixon's <laughs> like, I don't know. Hoover doesn't want to do it. I don't think we can do it. What was what was Hoover's line? Like why would he why would he say no? Well, he said no to things that he thought were going to endanger the FBI, endanger its reputation. Um, in Nixon's case, they were often things where Nixon wanted Hoover to be going much more aggressively against Nixon's own enemies. Um, and Hoover was uh, both a little bit more cautious in his old age, but particularly, and as it turns out rightly, concerned that these things were going to backfire um, and that if they became public, um, they'd all be uh, under a lot of criticism. So there are some funny moments uh, where Hoover is sort of the civil libertarian in the Nixon <laughs> administration. Nixon saying, my gosh, go after the new left and the anti-war movement more aggressively. And Hoover says, you know, some of that sounds illegal uh, and he doesn't want to do it, even though he's doing plenty of it on his own. What then did the FBI as an institution take away from Hoover's tenure? Because it's so interesting that you're referring to him, especially in the Nixon era, as, you know, seeing himself as defending the institution. When now when we tell this history, at least like popularly speaking, it's like, oh yeah, like Jagger Hoover totally besmirched the institution of the FBI. It took them decades to recover any credibility. What did the FBI itself as an institution think about all this? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of what we know about the Hoover years uh, and the kind of secret abuses, the campaigns against King were partly public during his lifetime, but a lot of the details didn't come out until after his death. Uh, so he died in 1972 and then 
you know, the church committee especially came along in 1975, 76, exposes a lot of this. And uh, that's when we kind of get this, this fixed sense of the Hoover era that's still with us today. Um, and I think it is absolutely true that, you know, what comes out in the 70s uh, delegitimizes the FBI, makes people much more suspicious of you know, the secret bureaucracy, those kinds of concentrations of power than they had been during Hoover's lifetime. And, you know, today, I think that the FBI has um, uh, mostly thinks about the Hoover era as a cautionary tale. In fact, James Comey, when he was director, kind of wanted everyone to study the FBI's campaign against King as kind of the great cautionary tale. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the FBI in a lot of ways is still fundamental mentally Hoover's institution, the one that he that he envisioned and built. So for this last section, I want to kind of zoom out and speak about your 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 broader work in this category and especially within the history of the FBI. So the US doesn't start with an FBI. You know, there isn't an FBI in the 19th century. Could you just talk about what like federal law enforcement looked? I mean, there wasn't even a like DOJ like until like the Civil War ish area. So can you just describe like what the pre because this is because I want to talk about your Wall Street terrorism book. Um, so like just like what was the environment prior to these 20th century um incidents, quote unquote, that really changed the structure? Yeah, for us today, the institutions like the FBI and the CIA and the NSA, right, the whole intelligence apparatus is so familiar, it's so part of our world that it's incredibly difficult to remember that it, well, none of these institutions existed at some point. Uh, that point is a lot later than most people think, which is to say there really wasn't a lot of federal law enforcement or federal intelligence until um, the early 20th century. And you know, some of that comes about because you start getting a lot more federal laws that need to be investigated and enforced, things like antitrust laws. Um, what I wrote about in my last book, which was a study of this bomb attack on Wall Street in 1920, was the ways that the First World War and then the Red Scare that followed the First World War really is a product of uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, lots of kind of left-wing revolutionary sentiment in the United States, um, authorized some of the first big experiments in uh, federal kind of peacetime surveillance in uh, famously in the First World War, figures like Emma Goldman, the anarchist, Eugene Debs, the socialist being put in jail. Um, and so that's really the birth of this kind of federal surveillance apparatus, which again is so familiar to us today that it's hard to remember. It all had to be invented and actually was really controversial for a long time. There were lots of people who said, don't do this. We know how that turned out. You know, it's interesting the way we, once again, like tell the history of the United States, it's, you know, the United States starts post-1776 and first we discover the Articles of Confederation like don't actually work. We need to expand. Then to the point about the DOJ, we can't just have an attorney general. It needs to be a Department of Justice. To what degree do you see the proliferation of federal agencies as a necessary development of history, times changing, you know, like there wasn't, U.S. didn't have a formal like intelligence agency until around, you know, World War II. And even, you know, like Hoover has his own beef of the OSS. This tries like the creation of the CIA. 
what degrees are these developments like natural outgrowth? And to what degree do you think we could say, okay, maybe this was this thing that maybe didn't need to be there, or this is different than it is in other countries? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think you weren't going to fight World War II and not have intelligence agencies (laughs) of some sort or another, right? So in that sense, um, I I think there's a a matter of inevitability there. And that holds true uh, for a lot of other forms of federal power and particularly for kind of administrative and executive power that – you know, they're sort of inherent to the modern state. Oops, my light went out here. Uh, it's good it's lighting, so no problem. Sensor. Can you still see me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Around. We'll come back on. Oh, okay. there we go. <laughs> that often happens in the middle of class here. Um, <laughs> but the particular ways in which these things come about, I think, are, are highly contingent. I mean, the FBI itself is really in some ways kind of a product of the New Deal um, and is a weird hybrid of being a a law enforcement agency and an intelligence agency at the same time. And it didn't have to be that way. And then I think in particular, Hoover was extremely influential in shaping kind of how the late 40s and early 50s, the early Cold War, the struggle against communism was going to play out. And that could have been, you know, a very limited campaign focused on, you know, national security, on espionage. But uh, Hoover really made it into a kind of grand cultural and social and political crusade for the FBI as well. And I think a different director might have done something very different in that moment. I'm I'm not looking for a uh, political take, given your background here, but I'm curious how writing this history makes you think through contemporary events as they happen today. So Mar-a-Lago raid happens earlier in this year. Trump makes his accusations about a politicized FBI, deep state, all those different categories. How is it like to just think through that moment as you're writing about J. Edgar Hoover, which is that almost at his worst beyond parody level articulation of what that worst case scenario would be? Right. Well, I think there were two things that came up for me a lot. So one was... um, Uh, interest in and uh, a little bit of befuddlement by um, what we've seen is this kind of partisan flip on the FBI. So really from the moment of Hoover's death up until pretty close to the present, if you had done public opinion polls, and there were many of them, uh, Republicans tended to uh, love and support the FBI and Democrats, liberals, leftists tended to be a lot more skeptical. Um, If you look at polls now, it's almost entirely uh, the reverse. And of course, a lot of that has to do with uh, the Trump years and with the FBI's rather fractious relationship with uh, with Donald Trump. So that's been interesting. And uh, and it made me kind of think about this longer history of, of, of liberalism and the FBI. Um, and I guess the, the other theme that came to me a lot was trying to read between the lines Um, And the deep sense that there's often much more going on behind the scenes than we are finding out, uh, which is to say, you know, the FBI often uh, admits to certain things and not others because it's trying to protect its sources or it's trying to uh, keep a different investigation going or because it's doing things that it doesn't want people to know about. I mean, a whole range of things. 
Um, and so uh, I think seeing that kind of from the inside out through through Hoover's eyes uh, doesn't give me any special access to what's happening behind the scenes today, but does often make me uh, hyper aware that we often are only getting part of the story. You know, there's been a lot of uh, talk of this ideological um, I'm switching. I mean, this podcast is called The Realignment. So I'm obviously interested in that topic. What it's, it seems to me the the just clear issue here since, actually, no, let me put it this way. When, let's say, the left was more opposed to the FBI, is the opposition like philosophical to this existence of this relatively new, within the time frame of the United States, federal bureau in a system that's federalist and has states and local law enforcement? Or is it just this power is being directed at me or people like me? Because if that's the issue, it's not surprising that the pendulum would just swing when, you know, if if you're on the right and you think that the, let's say the establishment is attacking everyone as a white supremacist and the FBI says they're going after white supremacists, you're going to say, okay, they're going after me. The same way someone on the left in good faith could say, hey, they're not just going after, you know, uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army or, you know, the weather, weather underground. They're going after black civil rights activists. Or is there like a deeper philosophical objection that either side of the aisle has ever advanced here? I think for a long time, it's been some of both. I mean, so the, the kind of civil libertarian tradition in the country uh, is this sort of mix uh, when you think about a group like the ACLU. So the ACLU really forms in the teens and 20s um, in order to defend left-wingers who are being targeted by the government, um, in order to defend anti-war dissenters, um, a whole range of very particular political causes, labor militants, um, et cetera. Uh, but you also get a broader conversation, uh, not only on the left, but among liberals and among many conservatives um, about what you know, free speech is all about, what democracy is about, what the proper limits of government power are. And, you know, that is also a, a kind of principled set of conversations. And so these have always been uh, sort of intertwined. Um, I think it is uh, a little bit alarming to think that we're just going to get a kind of partisan back and forth. I think that's a that's that's not great for the FBI uh, if we just get these flips from administration uh, to administration. And I'm not sure that it's uh, that it's great for the country either. So two last big questions here. So number one, I would really love considering the the scope of the history here and you you know you're 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 writing on um you know Wall Street violence in, in the twenties. Just what are your broad thoughts about political violence in in American in American life? Domestic political violence, right? So we're not talking about 9-11 necessarily, but just like the internally focused one that the FBI has particularly been, uh, not only today, but 1990s, Waco, Timothy McVeigh, Wall Street bombings, but you know, the you know, left and right wing violence in the 60s. Just what's your how do you conceive of political violence in America? Well, I think it's been a really powerful part of American history. And in some ways, I would say, historically, 
um, we see a lot less of it than we did a uh, hundred years ago. I mean, if you think about the late 19th and early 20th century, which is really the heyday of lynching, it is the heyday of incredible labor violence, right? Often employers shooting their own striking uh, employees, but often a, a real militancy within labor itself, uh, you know, bombings that I wrote about in uh, my first book. Uh, you've got all of these different traditions that are, you know, traditions of political violence, intimidation, uh, racial violence, race riots. I mean, we could go on. Uh, and so it's a really powerful and I think formative strain of American politics. We like to think that, you know, American democracy means these things always get channeled into elections or institutions, but that's not true to the history. I think one of the things that's the most interesting to me in the present um, is uh, how much less the left uh, embraces political violence than it once did. Uh, and I think we still see um, kind of overt, although obviously always small numbers of people embrace of a certain kind of violence on, on the right. Um, left revolutionary violence seems to have kind of faded away uh, for the most part as a, as a factor in American politics, though never say never. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. But, but it's been striking to me compared yeah. to the 60s, compared to the teens. Yeah, I really just have to pull it out for for listeners who haven't started these time periods. Say what you want. Um, Antifa at its 2020 worst does not compare to, let's say, depths of early 1970s, the peaceful version of both the civil rights, the anti-war movements have kind of either accomplished their goals and have kind of like petered out. And the only ones you have less left are like the most truly radical. It, it, it really doesn't doesn't compare to compare to your point. So then I, I guess a, here's another question then. Um, there's a kind of cottage industry of, of books of varying degrees of quality about like the United States being on like the precipice of like a broader like civil conflict. So Barbara F. Walter at UCSB has a, has a, has a, has a good book out there. She's an international relations scholar. So she very much frames this empirically in the context of like civil conflict is a thousand deaths per year. And if you compare the United States to other cultures, so, um, countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How does studying American political violence in the 20th century influence how seriously you take talk of serious political conflict in the United States? Because the more I read that history, the calmer, not that I was ever truly worried, but you just read, you, you, you read about 1970 to 1973, I'm like, okay, we have not seen one twentieth of this. Um, therefore, so yeah, what's your perspective on this issue? Yeah, I think there is a way in which studying all of this uh, does become strangely comforting, right? So uh, you look at a year like 1919, where you have you know, massive violence on many levels, strikes, conflicts with the government, racial violence, right, in this incredibly dramatic way. You look at the 1930s, uh, again, waves of really dramatic conflict in the streets, people worried that the whole society is on the verge of collapse from its economy to its social order, you know, up to the, the 60s and 70s, and particularly that period in the very late 60s and early 70s that you're talking about. Um, so the United States has been a place of really intense conflict for a very long time. Um, I do think that one thing we're seeing right now in the present 
uh, is that our political institutions, our parties, Congress, right, however you want to think about them, are uh, not mediating forces in a way that they might have been at other moments, right? That they're actually enforcing and reflecting these kinds of divisions. Um, So the divisions themselves aren't new. I think there are sort of aspects to the way our institutions are operating that that tend to accentuate the media as well, uh, some of those divisions, rather than try to, you know, kind of mediate them or even uh, even erase them. Um, people have forgotten a lot of this, right? So for the, the last wrapping kind of big perspective question, obviously we can take lessons from the 20th century when it comes to these institutions defeating violent movements of various sorts across the ideological spectrum. It doesn't have to be partisan in that sense. But what would your takeaways do 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 move our movements defeated? Do they peter out? Does the world change? Do people age out of it? Like, how do we think of like the domestic? Like, there's an answer to this when it comes to like international terrorism, but what is is there a domestic political American violence answer to that question? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me in looking at the FBI in particular um, and its own analysis of social movements, how they operated, how social movement organizations could be, you know, contained and disrupted, which is often what they were trying to do. Um, is that a lot of what they did had very little to do with uh, overt repression or law enforcement going to court. Um, a program like COINTELPRO was really aimed at uh, try to get organizations to kind of collapse on their own, get people to fight with each other, to have factions, to be paranoid, all of those things. And so in some ways they were trying to kind of enhance uh, some of the tensions that are always present in social movements. Um, so to some degree, I think uh, that, you know, obviously uh, federal surveillance and repression and law enforcement really matters in the fate of uh, of social movements. And that's a powerful part of Hoover's story. Um, but uh, I think in a lot of ways, it's often less because we prosecuted this set of people than part of some a much bigger set of dynamics campaigns, some of them deliberate um, and some of them not so much. Beverly, this has been really excellent. It's always best when the guest states their books rather than me just kind of reading it off of a script. Could you um, obviously shout out, um, you know, G-Man, and then could you uh, mention the Wall Street book too? Yeah. So the new book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Um, you can find out more about it at gmanbook.com. And my previous book was The Day Wall Street Exploded, A Story of America in Its First Age of Terror. That's about the teens, about this bomb attack on Wall Street, and about a kind of lost history of revolutionary violence in America. Thank you so much for joining me on The Realignment. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the show of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.